fire tribe, where you at? I hope you're ready, rising from the ashes and it's getting heavy Conspiracies, we got plenty and some are scary From aliens to Bigfoot, extraordinary, yeah, yeah Danunaki Dan and the homie Romy I was bugging out, all the crazy things he showed me Jesus bloodlines to the stars in the skies Always a good time, vibing with the fire tribe Hey, So wake up, wake up, get it cracking Rise out the ashes, I know you got a passion Kick off the combo with theories, many conspiracies Other dimensions, plenty ancient history Fire tribe, where you at? Wake up we about to get into it I know you can't get enough At home, at work It don't matter, turn it up Rising from the ashes You know what's up, ayy uh, Rising from the ashes Yo, everybody, welcome to Rising Hey, From the ashes, ashes. I'm Danny Naki Dan And I am the homie Romy How are you, sir? I'm good, what's good in the hood, homie? Oh, just chilling underneath the moonlight, being uh, being uh, washed away. in the moonlight. I'm basking, currently basking. How are you? Excellent. Thou? Party on. Parties, parties on. <laughs> oh, I'm feeling good though, man. I'm, I know I'm going to sleep very, very well this evening, and I'm just so looking forward to it. It's going to be glorious. Yes, sleep is yes, glorious. It is. Glory be to sleep. If we weren't all magnesium deficient, then we might all experience sleep so much more. Are you going to be talking to us about magnesium today? Not today. Soon, though. Trust me. It's just, it's it's heavy. It's big. It's deep. It's hard to do it in one uh, without, you know, having to dedicate massive amounts of time on it but i do plan on breaking it down in some news section uh soon and then i have sent out a couple of emails on some uh experts on the elements so we'll see what catches we get from that cast excellent yes and i want to remind the people that this whole month it's October. It's spooky time. Spooky time. So if you heard the last episode with Rhyme Wave, we want you to write in. Send us your dreams. Send us your, send us your paranormal stories, your ghost stories, your Bigfoot stories, your alien stories, your synchronistic stories, whatever you got. Send them in to us so we can get them on the last show and do a special Halloween episode and with that i'm good what you got for us today specifically rooibu a rooboy and vanilla chamomile tea a news news RFDA News. RFDA News. You heard it here first. Here we go. First off, steep dust tea for eight minutes in a cup with hot water. Roibu. I always say it wrong. Is it Ruboy? Is it Roibu? He doesn't know because he doesn't drink tea because he's uncultured. (laughs) See this? No, I'm just kidding. Um, It's because he actually... um, can't contain warm liquids or hot liquids uh, in his vessel. Only ice cold liquids for his ice cold heart. 
I'm a snake, <laughs> baby. I'm a snake. I'm a slithery snake. Me too. Um. Anyways, I'm a slithery uh, snake. I'm a slithery snake. Where, where, where do you slither to? Because I want to go. I want to slither. Let's, let's go. Let's go slither in some grass. Maybe some soil. Slither in some soil. Anyways, um, <laughs> uh, yes. So um, we have talked on the show before about the beautiful and esoteric history and medicinal uses of pine pollen. And today I thought it would be cool to share some more uh, stories and history behind more of the pine trees because damn near all of the varieties of pine trees are medicinal in many ways and different ways. And um, a lot of the one I'm going to be talking about today is is specifically Eastern white pine. Um, and I'm going to be sharing a lot of like Native American indigenous stories um, about the symbolism of the tree um, and different uh, like stuff from like Druid handbooks and all this stuff, all stuff. So um, are you Ooh. ready to hear the a Micmac legend? I am. Okay. The Micmac are First Nations people of the Northeastern Woodlands, um, indigenous to the areas known as Canada's Atlantic provinces, uh, Canadian Maritimes tribe. Um, and the story is called The First Pine Trees. This is another tale of the old time. Before Glooskop, the mighty magician, set sail in his stone canoe and off to the land of the red sunrise. There were three brothers dwelling together, and when they heard that Glooskop had promised to fulfill the wish of any warrior who, re who reached his magic lodge, they decided to brave the dangers in the way. The first brother was very tall, far above all his fellows, and very vain of his height. To make himself look even taller, he put bark in his moccasins and plastered his hair to stand high, and on the very top he stuck a long turkey feather but he wished to be even taller yet so that all the squaws would admire him. The second brother wished that he might remain forever in the forest, beholding its beauty, and that he never need work again. The third brother wished to live at a, to a very old age and always be in perfect health. So the three brothers started on their way along the dangerous trail that led to Glooskop's Lodge. They came to an exceedingly high mountain in a dark and lonely land. The side of the mountain was as smooth as iron, and the other side was worse. For their trail led them between heads of two huge serpents who darted out their fearful tongues. After that, the trail passed under a wall of death which hung over it like a cloud, rising and falling and rising again. And if it happened that any man passed beneath the cloud as it fell, he was crushed to his death. But the three brothers escaped all these perils of the trail and came to the island where Glooskap dwelt. The mighty magician welcomed them and bade his younger brother, Martin the fairy, place food before them. And after that, they had eaten and were refreshed. And they told their wishes. Now in another lodge nearby lived Kahuk, 
the earthquake. He could pass along the face of the land and make all things shake with terror. Glooskap called Kafuk and bade him take the three brothers and plant them with their feet in the ground. And immediately, Kahuk came rushing from his lodge and seizing the three, planting them in the forest, and they became the three straight pines. The first brother, who wished to be exceedingly tall, was the highest pine tree on earth and his head rose above the forest, and the wind whistled through his boughs, and today his turkey feather may be seen waving in the air. The second brother, who wished to remain in the forest and admire its beauty without working, could never leave it again, because his roots were fastened deep in the ground. And the third brother, who wished to live to a very old age and in perfect health, gained his desire. Today he stands and uh, tall and hardy in the forest, unless man have cut him down and if you go into the forest you may see the tallest pine tree with a turkey feather waving in the wind and the tree murmurs all day long in the indian tongue oh i am such a great indian i am such a tall man that's the story of the micmac tribe on the three straight pines excellent (laughs) okay let's see if you're still with me there sir I am. dozed off. I knew it. I knew it. Um, so <clears throat> that's a, a fun story about um, the white pine. Um, pine and, like I said, like conifers have been used as medicine for a very long time. Um, in addition to the uses of it as a building material and the beauty, obviously, in the landscape, the eastern white pine, penis strobus, is a very valuable medicinal plant and even a great food source. This majestic tree has a long history of applications for all manner of physical ills, and modern herbalists still consider it to be an excellent remedy for coughs and colds. The inner Did you bark. Say penis strobus. Yes, uh, pinus. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> pinus strobus strobus. Penis strobus. Uh, Penis strobus. Uh, pinus, uh, penis, penus. Uh, it's P I N U S. So, um, you know, the inner bark, resin, needles, and roots all have specific health purposes. The Iroquois and Micmac tribes used it as a panacea, finding its inner bark and resins to be a healing and wonder for coughs, bronchitis, laryngitis, and chest congestion. When Europeans first arrived in America, they reportedly followed the wisdom of the natives and drank tea made with eastern white pine needles to ward off disease. The blue-green needles are extremely rich in vitamin C. The soft inner bark of the eastern white pine, which is said to have a taste both bitter and sweet, was separated from the outer bark and hung in the strips to dry. And in times of great hunger, this bark was pounded into flour that is still considered to be an excellent survival food to this day. Writer Yule Gibbons details his own efforts to replace this famine bread, reporting that while it's edible and nutritious, its flavor might be an acquired taste. <laughs> um, it's pro- Yeah, it's probably bitter and sweet and kind of kind of i wonder what what else goes in the bread uh new shoots of white pine can be peeled candied boiling them until tender in plain water and then boiling them again for 20 minutes in a syrup made of sugar and and water and then you can eat the candied shoots the pine tree 
might actually be quite delicious. So, um, we're going to go into some more basic medicinal uses of pine. Um, and the pine needles, um, and real quick, everybody, this is why um, it's important to me that we go over this because uh, you can all harvest pine, you know, identify the pine that you see and, you know, on your, on your walk or in your neighborhood in your front or backyard and, uh, and, and find out what variety it is and, and look up what medicinal uses it has. Cause it makes for a great tea, shit, tons of vitamin C, uh, and, um, you know, just dates back to humans using this, you know, all, all the way back, all the way back. So I figured it'd be an important share. I um, just wanted to bring that up before I go into the more, uh, the text here. Um, and this is all um, that I'm going to read next here from the Chestnut School of Herbal Medicine. Medicinal uses of pine uh, pine needles. The fresh needles and buds picked in the springtime are called pine tops. And they're boiled in water and made into a tea consumed for fevers, coughs, and colds. The needles are also a diuretic helping to increase urination. Pine top tea is one of the most important historical medicines of the rural southeastern United States, especially given pine's abundance in the region. Earth always provides. Renowned Alabama herbalist Tommy Boss used the needles in a steam inhalation to break up the tenacious phlegm in the lungs. I combined pine tops with sprigs of fresh thyme, thymus lamassier, and bee balm. For this purpose, Tommy Bass reported the country people used to drink pine top tea every spring and fall to prevent colds. I enjoy the needles fresh or dry as a fragment and warming wintertime tea. It pairs well with cinnamon bark, cardamom, um, and maple syrup. Pine offers relief in sinus and lung congestion through its stimulating expectorant antimicrobial anti-inflammatory qualities. The fresh, younger, brighter in color needles also contain loads of vitamin C. Try combining it with peppermint, catnip, and other types of pine needles as a tea, which can be sipped upon throughout the day as an assuage during the seasons. Um, another really fun one that I've been harvesting for years is pine resin. And you ever, have you ever seen pine resin pouring out of a tree, my friend? Uh, I believe so. It's like black. Yeah. Uh, different trees, different colors. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, it's like the That's blood like of the what tree. They use, uh, pine tar, isn't it pine tar? Yes. Yes. They use that in, in baseball. Oh, for what? Uh, to, uh, increase your grip on the bat. Oh, nice. Guys will put their hand in pine tar and rub their hands together so they can grip the bat better. Yeah. Like the, the sap from the pine trees is used. I, I mean, there's at least 11 or 12 automatic uses you can use it for. Um, I'm going to bring up one really cool study here in a, in a bit, but from starting a fire to using it as a glue to having antimicrobial purposes, properties, and using it uh, to, you know, gap, you know, things together. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing. Anyways, um, I digress. Pine resin is amazing. Pine trees are amazing. I love trees. I'm a druid. Here we go. Pine resin, the resin, also called pitch, has many local first aid uses. It's used as an antimicrobial dressing on wounds and to pull out splinters. Pine resin 
in minute quantities has been used internally as a powerful expectorant, but it does have some toxicity. So I recommend sticking to the needles or the bark when it comes to internal use. Using pine pitch prepared as a topical solve can draw out splinters, glass, and toxins left from the poisonous insect bites. Pine resin salve is used is helpful to lessen muscle aches and joint inflammation. I have right now a sandalwood and pine uh, salve, and uh, oh no, sorry, sorry, frankincense and pine salve, and it smells. I I mean. If you want to smell like a hippie and don't, don't like patchouli, this is the shit I am telling y'all. So good. Frankincense and pine. Um, and yeah, I use that, use that every day on my face. Um, okay, we're going to go behind a little bit more spiritual value of pine trees in the history because every culture um, that has pine regionally just is is drawn to its beauty and its, uh, its um, spiritual abilities here. Trees and forest in general have played an important part, uh, important role as symbols of strength, kinship, growth, and wisdom. For instance, pines have permeated into the folklore of many cultures, being associated with immortality, steadiness, resilience, possibly due to their successful adaptation to diverse and often harsh environments, as well as their longevity in nature. The worships of evergreens predates Christianity as evidenced in sites from ancient Greece and Rome. In Greek oracles, the rustling of the evergreen and oak leaves was believed to be the voice of Zeus. This alludes to uh, evocative quality of these trees, which as Schroeder in 1992 eloquently states, relates to their deep experiences of awe, and awe can be understood as the existence of spirit. Among the ancient Maya, the pine has also cosmological attributes, such that pine wood was an important commodity traded to build temples and replenish ritual paraphernalia. (laughs) Pine charcoal was preferred over other material for torches used in ceremonies, even its geographical areas where pine trees may have not grown naturally. The act of burning pine represented an offering of sacred food to the deities, which emphasizes the spiritual qualities attributed to these trees. The evergreen nature of pines, which enable them to retain their green foliage during winter or dry seasons, also represents triumph over life over darkness in some Abrahamic religions. For example, pines are widely mentioned in theological discourse and scriptures, including Isaiah 60.13, which notes that pines and fig trees inhabited the good lands of Lebanon, a place home to those granted in grace. Additionally, it has been suggested that some scholars, that the first Christian or nativity tree was likely a pine or spruce tree meant to symbolize life and the warding against evil. The animist traditions of Japan, China, and Korea share a veneration of the pine tree as a source of longevity, virtue, masculine power. The Japanese term matsu loosely translates to as waiting for the soul of a god to descend from heaven, which relates to the Shinto belief that pines are ladders used by gods to ascend to heaven. Because of this godly connection, pine twigs arranged on bamboo trunks are fixed to doors during the new year to symbolize Kodomatsu or the pine gate, through which gods would channel their blessings to earthly dwellers. But the symbolism of pine does not end there. After 2011 tsunami over Tohoku 
uh oh here we go um riku zentekata uh riku zentekata city and the surrounding forest were completely devastated except for one pine tree this tree became a national symbol of resilience and spiritual reawakening such that it stood as a beacon during reconstruction efforts um yeah there's like i said a lot of cultures um a, a long period of time that i haven't been able to find and i was looking for just the oldest record of pine tree you know but they they go back to the beginning of the earth i mean in my intuitive opinion trees are the limbs of earth they're the the bones you know within the body of earth they're really important and they are um you know, I, 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 I hug trees and kiss trees often. Sometimes I, I don't ask them if they, they want a little extra, a little juicy kiss. And sometimes I lick trees, uh, with my tongue. And I also say, thank you. And then I give them a little pat on the butt as they walk away. You know, you gotta give, gotta give your blessings to the, uh, to land, my friend. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to read. Um, well, just can I can oh, I yes. comment on that real quick? Because it Please. seems oh, like. Yes. Do you have any comments? Yeah, it seems like a like pine has a, a direct relation to the gods, or to to at least the beliefs that that comes from somewhere sacred or something like that. You know. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's very interesting. So that means that the whole idea of us thinking the baskets that they had in the, Egypt the hand baskets of the gods could very well have been filled with pine pollen. I know. I you know it's funny you mentioned that because I was watching this morning um, a new video brought out by the Lightning Bolt Project or the Thunderbolt Project yeah. YouTube, um, and they had somebody bring their interpretation of the handbags of the gods representing storms uh, and representing like different major storms in the past. And I was like, hmm, I was like, I like it. I like, I like the creative, you know, uh, yeah. you know, and very, the guys, I mean, he's, you know, he's, he's a, he's a literary, so, you know, he's a, he's in the literary arts and uh, he's, he's beautiful, beautiful writing. But for me, I'm like, if they're holding the pine cone, they got the basket made of pine or cedar, you know, or some sort of, you know, yeah. I'm assuming it's, it's woven, a woven uh, from a tree. They might have, cause every part of the tree is used and, and by many cultures, the entire tree, you can even eat the young tree as you know, the, we talked about boiling and candying the young shoots of the trees, yeah. the outer bark, the inner bark, the pollen, the sap, uh, the pine nuts, like all of it. Um, and so, yeah, that's why mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm drawn to it and is because it's definitely old, uh, old, old, old. And, uh, you gotta, you gotta respect the oldies out there, you know, <laughs> there's a story of Nimrod too. Cause I, I think I heard you mention Nimrod, didn't you? I don't think so. Oh, well, there's a story of Nimrod who I, I tried to tell the story before, but I think I fell short, but, uh, he was a god in Babylon, and uh, he was trying to reach the sun, kind of like uh, 
Icarus. Um, but he didn't make it. He died. And uh, he's actually the one that commissioned, supposedly, the Tower of Babel. So that could be... Uh, that could be part of it because the Tower of Babel was supposed to be this big giant tower that was supposed to go up to the heavens. So it could have been like a, a rocket that he was fashioning or something like that to go to the heavens, and then an ascension rocket. Like that so, he, huh? An ascension rocket. Yeah, an ascension rocket. <laughs> uh, well, he was supposed to go to the sun, but he didn't make it, so he he ended up dying. But then a, a sapling grew from a pine tree that was cut down, and they venerated that as Nimrod returning as that sapling. And so they would bring uh, presents and offerings to that god in the forest, which is where we get the symbolism for the Christmas tree. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't I – don't, uh remember reading that story and I also don't remember you telling that story. Was that in the beginning when we were talking more pine, more penis? I think that was on uh, the last episode with, um, Yake Hagstrom. Oh, Oh, you heard yeah. it there first. Bing bang. Yeah, you weren't there for, you weren't there for that. But, uh, but yeah, so that <laughs> has to do with Nimrod too, which was a Babylon God and it has to do with pine and then it seems like they venerated so pine cool. or they thought of it very highly. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, it makes sense that they would use it in, in the baskets and in the, in the ceremonies. And then you even talked about before how it has attributes for like fertility and, uh, and everything like that. Yeah. Specifically the pine cone as well. Uh, the pine cone resembles that. And also, I mean, the name is, Penis, uh, with an eye. Pinus, yeah. Pinus, uh, yeah. but no, it's it's the the tree itself. the The symbolism behind the pine trees is you can't you can't deny it. Uh, there is no denying it. It's in the history. It's in it's in the human collective consciousness. The Akashic Library. We are in touch with it. It's here, and it's 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 more than us. Here's my problem with like the, the whole mainstream science and the transhumanism and all these things is it's all human centric. You know, it's not earth and earth and centric. It's not mm-hmm. centric. It's only centered around the human brain, the human psyche, the, the human transformative transformation, not, you know, it's, they're calling it human 2.0. What about, you know, earth 2.0? Like if we do all of that, wouldn't we, be, then become human 2.0 because earth became 2.0. Like it just, yeah. there's, it seems non-human. It seems not, it seems so f- f- focused around humans. And it's, I, I just, I don't like it. I don't like it. I hear you, man. Shit. Is that all? Is that all you got for us today? Let me read this you had um, another segment. Yeah. Yeah. This is from the, um, you know, I always like to do the old stuff and the Eastern and just non-Western, um, mm-hmm. side of things. And then I'll bring it in with just the classic from the national Institute of health, just to slap it, you know, slap the bag a little bit on it. So slap this is, bag. um, I'm just going to slap the bag a little bit on this one, y'all. Uh, so yeah, this is, um, some cool studies that was done by the national Institute of health. Um, refined spruce resin to treat chronic wounds, rebirth of an old folkloristic therapy. 
And it's, you know, uh, if you guys ever go on to PubMed or National Institute of Health, those websites where it's uh, just science papers, they can be really long and very wordy. So I just kind of go in and highlight some spots. Um, so some clinical uses where they used this pine pitch. Um, the salve prepared from the resin may be spread directly onto the wound after which the area is covered with a bandage that is suitable for local wound care. The bandage prohibits the salve from moving away from the wounded area. If the skin condition is more widespread or contains cavities or fistulae, the salve may spread as a film with a thickness of at least one millimeter onto some gauze. To fill the cavity, ooh. Dressings are changed one every three days, depending on the amount of the wound secretion. It is important to prevent to, to prevent salve prepared bandages from drying and becoming affixed to the wound. Surgical depredement at bedside on local anesthesia is recommendable if the wound comprises profusely debris or necrotic tissue. So yeah, you can you can put the salve directly onto the wound and it's it's going to heal it. Um the first modern medical report on resin's beneficial effects for pressure ulcers, ulcers was published as a case study in the Finnish Medical Journal in 2003. We described two patients, age 61 and 100 years old, respectively, who had been permanently treated in the long-term ward for their, pro their poor overall condition and whose severe pressure ulcers in the heel and the sacrum were successfully cured with pine resin. The first international case report in English was published in 2007. In that report, we described a man age 51 years old who had become in a motorbike accident and who severely infected an amputation stump of the lower leg was against all expectations of the orthopedic orthopedic surgeon, the plastic surgeon and infection control specialist successfully cured with topical pine resin treatment amputated leg and like every the, the all the surgeons and the infection control specialists were like nah, i don't know about this but um but there we go so the conclusion of this of these multitude of studies here um approximately 70 percent of the scientifically tested pharmaceuticals and local treatment products that we use nowadays for various medical conditions still originate in the natural world we are inclined to forget, for example, that the basis of both modern antibiotic treatment and immunosuppressive drug therapy, as well as local wound care options, have been uncovered by individual researchers and groups making empiric observations that step-by-step -step have led to the scientific breakthrough. Nowadays, efforts to find new therapeutics such as antibiotics seem to have shifted back to the natural world. The shift has resulted in a number of newly discovered treatment options for several refractory medical conditions with unique scaffolds or novel mechanisms of action. It is undisputable that the establishment of the efficiency of spruce and pine resin in the treatment of chronic wounds fulfills the, uh, the criterion <laughs> of new innovation of an old folkloristic medical therapy. 
Although resin-related basic clinical and applied research results give strong evidence for mechanisms of action, clinical effectiveness, and feasibility of resin treatment for its current indications, several unsolved questions remain. The next targets of research gr- uh, of our research group are to individualize pharma- pharmacology active compounds that are responsible for antimicrobial activities of resin. So, yeah, um, they want to make it fake um they want to make it in a lab but they can't make it as good as the trees make it but they are at least recognizing that it's an a massive amazing healer and it is free and provided from the earth so there you have it my friends the beautiful pine the bark the resin the the needles and the love excellent very beautiful Thank you, Roman. <laughs> You're welcome. I, I, I appreciate you. I appreciate you too. <laughs> uh, well, I want to say that we have Morgan Daimler on the show today, and we talk about fairies and Tuatha de Danan, and we talk a little bit about some other um, infamous figures. Um, but there's a whole lot of them, and uh, I wish I could tell you more and read more from this book, and I wish we could have talked to her for longer, and I will try to get her on again, uh, because she has a lot of really good information, and she's been studying this for years and has so many books. I think she has like 32 or 36 books. Yes, on a lot <laughs> fairies and fairy magic and like Irish folklore and everything. It's amazing how much stuff she has done. I'm surprised like we don't hear her um more podcasts more often because uh it's yeah, she just has tons of knowledge. She told us about the different invasions that involved the Tata de Danan and the Fear Bold, and some others. And so today I'm going to be reading a blog from Morgan Daimler, and it's titled The Morgan, the Dagda, and Sam Hain from Wednesday, October 6, 2021. And it says, as we're getting into October and people are turning their attention to Sam Hain, I'm starting to see discussion and references to the meeting between the Morgan and the Dagda at the River Unshin showing up here and there. This is one of those stories from myth that often suffers from telephone game syndrome. That is people who haven't actually read or heard the story themselves taking a small part of it that's widely repeated in creating their own context for it, which in the wider scope of modern folk belief has its place. However, today, I thought it would be helpful to outline what's actually going on in that part of the story and address some common misconceptions around it that directly contradict the myth. This is intended to argue against the more modern takes so much as to show the context and give some insight into the actual origin story for those who are interested. This is easier to do, to be honest, because there is only one surviving manuscript containing this story, which occurs in the Kath Meg Turid, the CMT, 
So for once, we have a singular source to look to rather than carefully sorting through multiple contradictory texts. I like to look at several specific ideas that I find are really common around this topic. Number one, the Dagda and the Morrigan meet up and have sex on Samhain. Well, no, not exactly. They do meet up and have sex, that part's true, but in the text it's pretty clear that their meeting occurs more than a week before Samhain. It's the battle with the Fomorians which occurs on Samhain. According to the text, Morrigan and the Dagda meet around the time of Samhain, and she asks him to gather the Ace Dana, the skilled people of the Tuatha day. While she goes herself to attack Indek, one of the Fomorian kings, she then meets them all at an agreed point and displays the king's blood as proof she has done as she said she would. The text says of the second meeting, which I cannot read because it's in a foreign language to me, but I think she prefaced it in English, so it says, This was a week before Samhain, they all scattered until all the men of Ireland came together the day before Samhain. Now we can argue that Samhain itself isn't a single day, although it's named as the 1st of November in the text but a time period which is fair, but that time period is generally seen as extending forward beyond the day of Samhain, not as a nebulous time around that day, hence the month of November in Irish is the month of Samhain, Mina Samna. Beginning with the day of Samhain, November 1st, so when we see this meeting in the story, it's happening at some point around the middle of October. Then she goes and attacks the Fomorian king, and then she meets up with the Dagda and Aesdana a week before Samhain. Then the day before Samhain, all the Tuatha Dei gather for the battle. Number two, the Dagda sought the Morrigan out for her help in battle. When people talk about the meeting of the Dagda and the Morrigan, it's often framed in the context of the Dagda seeking the Morrigan out, as if he had gone on a quest to find her. However, it's clear from the myth that his meeting was one that occurred every year between the two. Uh, again, more language I can't read, but I think it's prefaced. The Dagda was to meet a woman on a day, yearly, about Samhain of the Battle of Glen Eten. She is the Morrigan, the woman mentioned particularly here. It is also important to note that these two figures aren't strangers or casual acquaintances. In fact, they are referred to in several places as a married couple, and in the CMT it said that the place they laid together was called Leg Ina Laramono, the bed of the married couple. So rather than going out to search for her, he was simply meeting her where they met, every year and because the meeting that particular year was right before a battle she gave him marital advice marital marital advice as it were number three the morrigan had to be persuaded to aid the tuatha day one of the more common ideas i see attached to the union of the dagda and the morrigan is that Dagda slept with her in order to gain her aid in the battle with the Fomorians. This is often tied into and 
related and accurate idea that the Morrigan was some sort of neutral party or was not one of the Twatha Day herself. Now, putting aside that we've already established she was the Dagda's wife, it is important to note a couple other points. Firstly, the Morgan is very clearly listed as one of the Twatha Day across all the source material we have that mentions that sort of thing, and her mother is listed as one of the women of the TDD. She has already appeared in the Kset Kath Mage Turid, first battle of Mag Turid, against the Fear Bolg, using her magic against the Fear Bolg, and aiding in the Twatha Day. More importantly, perhaps, in the story of the Kathmeg Tarid, the Morgan has already been helping the Twatha Day prior to her meeting with the Dagda, specifically by appearing to Lu and inciting him to rise up and fight against the oppression of the Fomorians. She is without a doubt on the side of the TDD and working in their favor, and nothing in the story directly indicates the Dagda ever asked her for her aid or even advice. It says only that the Dagda spoke to her, they slept together, and afterwards she gave him military advice and went to attack the Fomorian king herself. Number four, the Morrigan and Fomorian princess are the same person. Another idea I see floated around a lot, which may be tied into point three, is the conclusion between the Dagda's meeting with the Morrigan and the subsequent meeting and tryst he has with a Fomorian princess. Basically, he meets with the Morrigan, as discussed above, and is later, after other war preparations, sent out by Lu to spy on the Fomorian camp. Leaving there, he encounters a Fomorian woman, who says she is the daughter of the king Indek, and the two become lovers, after which she promises to work magic against her own people. I will note that the second meeting is entirely omitted from Stokes' translation of the CMT, because as he says of it, much of it is obscured to me, and much of the rest of it is too indecent to be published in this review. I suspect that this being the easily available public domain material which many people access, and that section being omitted, is one factor that led to the conflation of the two encounters. As people hearing of the second but unfamiliar with it assume it is in fact the first in any case while there are some common themes between the two there are also multiple notable differences which makes it clear that the two are different figures within the story these are a few of the most common things i run across that i feel should be addressed or clarified as i said in the introduction people are free to believe what they will and follow different modern ideas of this meeting but hopefully this has helped clarify the written version of the myth and what it actually tells us. So that is the end of that blog post. Um, so I think it's a good uh, little blog post to learn a little bit more about the Twatha Day, the, the Fear Bolg and the Fomorians and Morrigan and the Dagda. Um, it's pretty interesting. I, I want to read more of these stories. I would like to get her back on again, just have her like just dive deep into one of these stories and uh, we can talk about it. It'd be really awesome. 
but that's all that I have for today for RFTA news. So I'll catch you guys later. Hey, everybody. Thank you for tuning into today's show. We are rising from the ashes. And we as the fire tribe will rise. Awaken our eyes. Beyond what is seemingly laid upon us. We can extend our consciousness to the further ends of our cosmic understanding. If you enjoy our show and you like the content that we create, make sure to like, subscribe, share with your friends. Hello everybody, yes please, please, please do. Also follow us on Instagram at RFTA Podcast. If you have any questions or concerns, you can email us at risingftashes at yahoo.com. We are exclusively on Alt Media United. Check it out, altmediaunited.com forward slash rising. Rising from the ashes. I'm Danu Naki Dan. I'm the homie Romy. How is everybody doing? How's it going? We're here today with Morgan Daimler. Did I do it right? Daimler, but everyone says it Daimler. wrong. So Daimler. You're fine. <laughs> We're here with Morgan Daimler. Well, I'm going to edit it and nobody will ever know. So, <laughs> cool. So, how's it going, Morgan? Good. Good. We're uh, over here on the East Coast. Just got like five buckets worth of rain. Lots of flooding. Ooh. Good times. Oh, yeah. Good times. <laughs> Where are you at yeah. approximately on the East Coast? Um, I'm from Maine originally, but I'm a little oh, further okay. south at this point. Uh, kind of in the, the southeastern New England area. We got the, the remnants oh, of okay. Ida yeah. came through, so... Oh, did you did you get the remnants of? I I just read a thing mm-hmm. that like forty more people died from that. Uh, the remnants of Ida on the way up. It said the northeast, but it doesn't really explain where the northeast is. So that's why I was curious if you had sort of a general area. Yeah, it's yeah. Like the no. northeast could be all kinds of places. Yeah, yeah. No, we got um, some wind and then a lot of rain. A lot, a lot of rain. So oh, yeah. it was it was intense, but you know, dealt with but it. Still flooding, have electricity, no. so. Oh, that's good. Yeah, it's always it looks there. A little looks a little wet out your window. A little, um, but it's <laughs> it's getting better. Tomorrow's supposed to be a nice day, so. Oh well, that's good. Well, 
I live out in sunny California, and it was about seventy something degrees today. Oh, how is how is Smoky Smoky Bear California <laughs> air doing down there? It's fine. Yeah, not too not too toxic today. Problem. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's always so damn hot. It never rains here. It's gonna become the new desert. Uh, we're all gonna just dehydrate and wither away. But mm. uh, I know, you know, uh, I went to Tennessee not that long ago on a trip, and uh, we were thinking about moving out there. And then after we went there and experienced some of the rain, uh, when we're driving through Kentucky, we're like, yeah, maybe this side of the U.S. isn't isn't what we want. <laughs> and then right after we left, uh, Nashville flooded. And then, and then now Hurricane Ida. So I'm like, shit. Really glad we didn't move out that way. <laughs> that, that's so funny. I was out in California in I think it was 2017. I've only been out twice, um, both times for a uh, conference in San Jose, and I think it was mm-hmm. the second time. Massive rain, massive flooding. <laughs> roads were getting you shut down. It with you. <laughs> Yeah. Maybe I well, did. I back. didn't think so at the time, but <laughs> Yeah, come back out here because we could use some of that now. <laughs> well, if I go out yeah. a third time and you get rain and flooding again, you can definitely blame it on me. Yeah, I totally will too. You got some uh, classic old uh weather manipulative uh <laughs> magic going on there. Yeah, you're bringing all the fame me. with you. Yeah. Yes. So uh give us uh, a little bit of background about yourself, Morgan. Cool. Um, that's a, a lot to compress. I'll try not to ramble too much. Um, okay. Or do. Like I said, yeah. uh, it, well, you know, it might end up that way. Um, like I said, uh, southeast, southeast, northeast coast, if that makes sense to everyone. Kind of like think New York, Connecticut, Rhode Island area. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm in there somewhere. Um, I originally am from Maine, but, uh, my dad's side of the family is, uh, a mix of Irish and Cherokee. My grandmother was Cherokee, but my, uh, grandfather mm. is from Ireland. Um, uh, my mother's side of the family has been in New England, uh, for like 400 years. So it makes for an interesting, you know, uh, mix of cultures, I guess you'd say to, to sort of come in with um and then of course new england is its own weird cultural zone and i uh kind of grew up more with the the irish american side of things as like a big influence mm-hmm. and you know fairies even when i was really young were something that i i believed in and i um was always looking at like not just stories of them, but like to me, they were like a, a daily thing. They were something that you could encounter. And I would write like letters to them and put them on my windowsill when I was like nine and mm. 10. I mean, it was an interesting child, basically. <laughs> um, and, you know, as I got a little older, it just kind of shifted from being uh, sort of a personal interest to being more of a um, academic kind of interest. Like I started looking into the, mm-hmm. the written stories and um, particularly the kind of stuff that is still um, in Ireland, uh, you know, the, the beliefs that are still over there. 
And it's just one of those things, like the more you, you get into it, it kind of sucks you in, you know, and the more you learn, the more you yeah. realize how little you, you know, and then it just, <laughs> just becomes a whole, a whole all consuming thing, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and had, had gotten into witchcraft when I was like 11 or 12. So, you know, that's another sort oh, of wow. inf- influencing factor for me. Um, that's what got me into Irish mythology. So, um, you know, I, mm. how'd I you get into I witchcraft was... at 11? Like, <laughs> like so how this, does that happen? This is a hilarious story. Uh, in my perspective anyway, other people might not, not agree, but so <laughs> I, I'd mentioned a little about like my family background. Uh, my, my dad was Catholic, very, very, very Catholic family. And my mom, you know, having more of that New England background, was Protestant. So when they got together, uh, not to date myself, but this would have been like in the 1970s, of course, that was like not allowed. That was a big no-no kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And the compromise that, that their families came up with, which to this day just completely baffles me, was that they would allow them to get married only if they agreed any children would not be raised in either religion. Hmm. It was this sort of like, that was their compromise. Instead of fighting over whether the kids would be Catholic or Protestant, it was just, well, the kids will be nothing. So <laughs> I kind of had grown up with this like secular agnostic, you know, like I said, I believed in fairies when I was young and we celebrated like, you know, Easter is when the Easter bunny came, Christmas was when Santa came. And that was kind of it. But my best friend, um, when I was around that age, uh, who actually was from Ireland, she had moved here um, a few years prior, also very, very Roman Catholic, had come across a book that was like an intro to witchcraft kind of book and had asked me if I might be interested in also reading it and kind of, you know, trying some stuff from it. And this would be like religious witchcraft, like Wicca, um, if you will, not some of the more interesting things that might be out there. Uh, and I was like, okay, you know, sure. And of course she ended up very quickly being like, yeah, this is not for me. Whereas I was like, this makes perfect sense. This kind of fits the world you I already had. Like, you know, of course there's a multitude of different gods and not just one. And of course, you know, ghosts and spirits are real and, all that other stuff. Um, so it just, you know, it, it made a lot of sense to me. Um, and mm-hmm. then it all just went from there. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So my Roman Catholic friend was my gateway into witchcraft is the, <laughs> the moral of the That's story. Hilarious. <laughs> I, I was uh, personally like at that age, I think Harry Potter had already come out. And so I, I was, I was deep in deep in trying to make, whatever i could from whatever i could however i could make it and do it and live growing up in the woods you 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 really try to practice magic as a kid uh i think a lot i mean if you grow up isolated in the forest like living out you know in a, in a house that takes 45 minutes to get to town you're out there trying to talk to the trees and you know vibing with the forest i mean i definitely was yeah <laughs> yeah sure yeah, the, the town I grew yeah. up in, it has since gotten a lot more suburban, but 
it was sort of initially a little more rural. So I, I feel you on the, you know, not much else to do, but, you know, go play in the swamp behind the house kind of deal. So. <laughs> and, and so how did you get into writing? Uh, did you go to school to be a writer or anything like that? Or you just. Not per se. <laughs> um, yeah, I'd, I'd always enjoyed writing. Um, you know, when I was in high school, I was in a creative writing group and, uh, I used to write a lot of poetry as, of course, like every teenager, I think with a, a dramatic artistic bent tends to do. Um, not like that's a super unique thing, but I had wanted to do fine arts when it's I lovely. was in high school. So that was kind of my big, big focus. And then I graduated and found out that that costs money to go to college for, and I didn't have <laughs> money. So <laughs> kind of scrapped the the fine art thing. Um, and for a while I didn't write. I actually, uh, I was an EMT for uh, a good amount of time cause it's, you know, a six month certification and it's a pretty good job to have, um, uh, particularly in my area. And then sort of a little later down the road, I was like, well, I do want to, you know, go to college if I can. Um, not a huge thing in my family, but something that I, I had wanted to do. And um, I ended up going actually for uh, psychology. So I have a psychology degree, which has mm. nothing to do with writing or fairies or Irish mythology. Um, but it helped me. Do you learn. understand yourself now? <laughs> I, I, the biggest thing, I, my biggest takeaway, honestly, <laughs> from getting a psych degree is that humans make no sense. Absolutely. Just, yeah. There's, there's no. No sense to be found in humans. Um, yeah, but actually going to college, even though the degree didn't end up being something that I um, I use in my, my life, uh, taught me how to uh, use discernment and critical thinking and research, uh, how to cite sources, um, all of that super important stuff. And that all I have used. Like that's been really, really useful um, moving forward, particularly with the nonfiction writing. And, you know, I think I just hit a point where um, I had decided that I had wanted to get some writing out there sort of casually. You know, I think my, some of my friends were encouraging me to start a blog back in the day when like everyone was blogging. I mean, everyone kind of still is, but, you know, this would have been like 2010, kind of. 2011. Before the, the podcast boom. Before the con yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and you know, I at the time I figured, sure, you know, I don't know who's gonna read it or you know, why anyone would be interested, but I, I might as well, you know, put it out there. And um I actually started to realize that a lot of things at the time that I was kind of taking for granted were things that other people weren't aware of, uh, particularly with Irish mythology and fairies, because I just knew the material so well. I'm sure you both know how that is. Like when you know a, a subject really well, you just assume like, well, of course, everyone else. Everybody you know, knows everyone it. Knows, yeah. Everyone knows this. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then I started to realize, oh, no, actually, you know, a lot of people don't have access to the same sources and, um, mm -hmm. you know, I, I do have a little bit of modern Irish. I can speak a little bit of modern Irish and um, I taught myself old Irish so I could read the myths in the original language, which is like the nerdiest, geekiest thing ever. It's my 
super fun hobby. But um, but it's the best thing if you're a researcher because <laughs> the original is always uh, much different than the, the renditions. Yeah, uh, yeah, yep. the renditions of it because they always the words change, you know, and they have different meanings and different new slangs, and they try to incorporate that into how they view the old style, but it's not. That's not very Christian. Take that out of that. Ooh. (laughs) Gross. Pagan. That, that, (laughs) that actually is, it's literally some of what had inspired me. Um, I was at the time I was really researching the Morrigan, who is one particular Irish goddess. And I was looking at this one source and I was like, okay, you know, this is what the source says. And I looked at this other source. I'm like, wait a second. This is saying something different. And why, if they're like trans- supposedly translating the same thing, why are they not coming out with effectively, you know, pretty much the same translation? And yeah, come to find out the the translator that most people use because he's been pu- in the public domain, it's older material, is one of those pesky Victorians that was like, well, this is icky, so we don't <laughs> want to include this. And, you know, I'm going to insert this other thing because I think this should have been in here. And, you know, Mm. I I got so mad about it. I honestly learned Old Irish out of spite because (laughs) it's like I want to be able to read this and see what it actually says because it clearly doesn't say what this guy says that it says, which it didn't. That's hilarious. Yeah. That's also disturbing, honestly. (laughs) It's like so uh, many games of telephone through. Ugh. It really is. And then then you get people who are taking that Victorian translation and doing a retelling, which is kind of um, what you had just said a minute ago, where they're adding, updating the language mm-hmm. and, you know, kind of modifying a bit. And then you get people who are doing retellings or basing stuff off of that. And it is like a game of telephone. You're, you're getting so far away from what the actual original myth was that you almost get something totally new and different that's not connected. So mm-hmm. sorry, I have a lot of passion for this. If you really get me going on linguistics, I will just do this for an hour. Oh, Hey, this is what we love to talk about. We love to talk about history and stuff. And we do a lot of research ourselves into the same thing. So we can, com- you're in good company. Right <laughs> absolutely awesome. you know what i'm saying awesome. like this is what we love to do too so as far as the fae and the fairies is there a difference between fae and fairies or is that the same uh is there is it like christianity and catholicism you know where it's like the same um, but slightly different i think you know fae and fairy in particular it would be pretty much the same it's it's actually really interesting to me that fey has had such a like um resurgence in popularity like 10 years ago yeah. you hardly ever heard people Video using the, the term fey yeah um mm-hmm. 20 years ago 30 years ago again i'm making myself sound horribly old right now um but people <laughs> people nobody just nobody ever said fey pretty much it was you know just yeah. not a term people use everything was fairy um but fey is the older french word that fairy comes from so they're they're basically mean the same thing although you will get people online in different groups that kind of argue that and sort of say that fae is like the general term and fairy is more specific 
Um, but um, his, historically speaking, if you look at the older folklore and older material and a lot of even the modern stuff, fairy is just kind of a generic term for anything that's kind of otherworldly that's not from this world. When I hear fairy, I just think of like Tinkerbell and stuff, you know, and like little tiny flying humans. But when I hear, yeah, but when I hear fae, I think of, oh, now you're talking about Irish mythology. You're not talking about Disney fairies. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really common. I think a lot of people kind of have that idea and it'll be interesting to see where that goes moving forward if that does become sort of the the divide um uh-huh. i think we're right now we're kind of at that branching point mm. where you know we're gonna see see which direction it goes in um what what is it in old irish what is the word in old irish if the french version is fey and- in old irish would be sheath uh modern irish is she mm. is she um people of the fairy mounds people of the fairy hills so the, I mean, there's, the there's other modern Irish words too, but S I D H E is how you spell she, right? Yep. yep. So I always uh, came across that, and I pronounce it Sid He or whatever, you know, because I don't, I'm not very. Yeah, smart. If, if you don't have any but, Irish, that's what it's going to look like. I have found, uh, I've done research, and I've. Fa- kind of come across that maybe the Sidhi are the same as the Scythians. Do you know anything about that? Um, Scythians, you'd have to give me a little more to go with on that. They were a group of people that live between the Caspian and the Black Sea. Ah, okay. Yeah, that's actually a new one for me. I hadn't heard of that. So, Oh, uh, yeah. That's where like uh, have to look into the it. Sith, the Sith and uh, huh. like Star Wars the Sith cool. uh, comes from the she and the uh, it's, it's kind of one in the same type of thing that we're kind of just talking about it and then uh, and then as far as like the I'm going to butcher this one the Tuatha de Danannan the Tutu de Danan. Tuatha Danan I've found uh, through other stuff that there well there's two different sources that I, I have found it in. And one of them, uh, Dan, comes from the north and from like Denmark and other such places as Germany and France. And then they come over to Ireland. But then from like Bible, you get the tribe of Dan and people relate the tribe of Dan also to the Dedanen. So I was wondering if you know, is there any is there any truth to that? There we go. I mean, there's there's so many different theories out there. Um, we certainly there's sort of a long-standing idea that the um, the Celtic culture itself sort of came from that Indo-European um, sort of originally out of India kind of thing. So you see these connections out of India, linguistically. You yeah, if you go way way back, um, that's why looking at um, Danu in particular that aspect of Tuatadanan. Um, mm-hmm. You see her in uh, Wales as Don. Uh, you see the Danube in, uh, you know, mainland Europe is kind of named after her. And then there's uh, a connection in India. I can't remember now if it's a goddess that's named the same thing or if it's a river, because she's often connected to rivers, that name, that 
whatever you want to call it. Um, yeah, I saw in in the video you said her name means flowing. Flowing. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and then there was another the... one that means abundance. What was the one that means abundance? Anu. Oh, Anu. Yep. Yeah. Um, it but gets a enough... little tricky because of the linguistics. Some of it you're sort of trying to <laughs> reconstruct. Um, so mm-hmm. sometimes there's sort of open questions about like, was it supposed to be more this one or that one kind of a thing? Yeah, because all the rivers that come out of the Black Sea are named after, well, what I thought was the tribe of Dan, uh, or just Dan in general. But so Danu, but they worship Danu, so that would make sense that they probably named a river after. So so there's also the Don, the the Nipper, and the Dinister, which all have that Dan name. And then there's like a coastal. Spanish uh, city named Donia, mm-hmm. which is a uh, they talk about being associated with Atlantis and stuff, which is I find very interesting too. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely really widespread cultural connections with that. Um, like I said, you can you can kind of trace it back really really far, and then it seems like it sort of spread westward um, with this cultural influence, um, but a lot of it. Because you're sort of reconstructing um, and and guessing, if you will. I mean, educated guesses in academia, but it's still hard to know for sure um, mm-hmm. exactly how certain things happened or or what the exact connections are. It's it's really fascinating to look at. Um, you know, talking about sources for the Tuatadanan. If we look at the mythology, we have you know certain stories which I think you kind of touched on a moment ago that say they came from the North, um, usually referencing like um, Norway or, you know, sort of those Northern European mm-hmm. countries. Um, so there has been some suggestion, particularly because they're often described as like very fair, uh, fair haired um, that maybe they were humans who'd come from there. And that was sort of where the idea came from. We have other stories that say they came from the sky and ships and clouds and landed on the top of a mountain. So, you know, that mm-hmm. would definitely sort of be a very different <laughs> source from, uh, you know, a couple millennia ago humans. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's interesting to look across like all the, the material that's out there, all the different um, ideas people put forward for where the two of the came from, who they were, that sort of thing. There's a connection that I'm recalling, and I have absolutely no backing to give any uh, <laughs> to give any spine to this. But um, there was a connection between ancient Egyptians and Irish, like um, somewhere Scotia, Scotia, yep. and it was potentially something Scotland. to do with Druidism or something as well. Um, but I'm, I'm not I'm not sure. So I you I know mean, might be going out on a limb here. Yeah, like I said, there's there's a lot of different material that's out there. Um, there's definitely accounts in the myth that talk about the pharaoh's daughter, and yeah, Scotia is her name. And so supposedly, according to some of the Irish material, that's where the name for Scotland came from. I think that's a little pseudo historical, but you know, mm. uh, that's still something people believed for a very long time. Um, there's supposed to be a, pl- a location in Ireland. It's her grave. Um, there's a lot of Irish mythology that ties into specific places. So there's a lot of like this person's grave is here kind of stuff. 
Um, and that's, that's one of them. Um, so it's, it's definitely an interesting connection and that comes up. A lot of the mythology tries to tie things in. I mean, keeping in mind it was written down, you know, pretty much by Irish monks, um, tries to tie things either back to the Bible or back to classical, um, mm. you know, Mediterranean or Middle Eastern mythology. So hence you get, you know, the Egyptian stuff coming in. Um, you'll hear a lot about Noah and the flood and that and, you know, various different stories. Um, so like I said, it's, it's a lot to kind of take in and a lot to think about. Um, Were the Daydanen the first peoples to come to Ireland or who's, who's in Ireland before the Daydanen? Sure. So there's a book, it's called the Leverkaval Aran, um, the book of the invasions whoa, whoa, whoa. of Ireland. Um, Say I that a little slower. <laughs> Leverkaval Aran. Um, is the Irish and it's, it's the um, okay. taking of Ireland or the, the book of invasions of Ireland. And it kind of tells the story of Ireland from effectively, you know, the, the, the flood, the great flood um, from the Bible mm -hmm. up to when humans came to Ireland, humans are like the fifth wave of settlers, if I remember correctly. So you initially have um, one group that comes in and tries to settle, and if I remember correctly, there's a plague, everyone dies. A very cheerful mythology. And um, <laughs> then you have the second group that comes in, but they end up with this third group who's never explained. They just sort of appear, and they're, they're sort of these like seafaring, uh, chthonic, raider, sort of powerful. It's really unclear whether they're supposed to be humans or like gods um, in any of the stories, mm -hmm. but uh, the Florians show up and uh, they sort of drive the second group out. And the second group then goes and kind of splits into two. And one of them becomes the Tuatadanen. The other group um, becomes a, a group called the Fyrbolg, who supposedly, according to mythology, go to Greece and are kind of in, in service in Greece and then decide they don't want to keep doing that because why would you? And escape and go back to Ireland, and then they become the next round of settlers. And then um, the Tuatadanen come back, and there's a huge battle between the two. Uh, Tuatadanen eventually win, um, and the Fyrbolg are kind of pushed off into one little section um, in the northwest. Yes, northwest. And then, you know, that sort of works out okay for a little while, but then those sort of seafaring, chthonic beings, the Forians, show back up, and then there's another huge fight with them, um, which a lot of the theme in a lot of Irish mythology is different huge fights. Uh, and the Tudadan and win again. <laughs> um, but then finally, humans come, uh, the Milesians, supposedly from Spain, um, and these are the ones who had mm. been in Egypt, uh, uh, hence the whole Scotia connection. And um, they come in and initially don't have any luck, but they have a druid with them who uh, kind of makes a deal with the sovereignty goddesses of Ireland um, and then uses his magic to sort of get humans into the, into the island. Um, and they end up What's winning. This and then uh, Emergen. Emergen? Emergen, yep. Okay. Emergen Whiteney uh, is his name. And, um, and he and what 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 are the like the times the 
time table? Do you know like a timetable for this of what kind of like era in the BC period this was? Or it's a little kind of- unclear because most of the stories were written down. But well, most of the stories were originally written down between like the fifth and ninth century. But most of what we actually have in writing is from the eleventh, tenth, and eleventh. Um, and there's like copies of copies of copies kind of things. Um, in the originals, it, were they more poetic also? Yeah. Um, in the original language, it definitely has a different flow to it. Um, they just had a different um, different approach to storytelling, I guess we would say. Uh, mm-hmm. they. It's interesting. Like They don't often describe what a person looks like in a lot of detail, but they'll describe clothing, weaponry, in a huge amount of detail, uh, which to me is really fascinating because it's almost like it doesn't super matter what the person wearing the stuff looks like, mm-hmm. but the stuff itself would have been really significant for the audience. You know, you would, you would know based on how they described it, like, oh, this was a really important noble person or this was a great warrior. And it just doesn't matter, mm-hmm. you know if he was six foot tall or five foot tall or a hundred pounds or 300 pounds or whatever. Did they talk about giants? Um, Sometimes. Yeah. There's some cases where they, they come in. Um, It's a little difficult because there's not a lot of consistency in some of this. Like Uh you'll, you'll run across material that's like, Oh, the Fomorians, those sort of seafaring Catholic powers, um, oh, they're hideously ugly. Oh, they're some of the descriptions are really wacky too, like one leg, one arm, one eye, kind of stuff. Uh, monstrous. But then you'll have other accounts where it's like, oh, but this particular one was actually really gorgeous, and all the women loved him, sort of a thing. But like Bress. Uh, yep, um, Bress's father was the one I was thinking of. Yeah. Okay. Um, but Bresh would be a good example too. Half Morian, half to and, and supposedly like the most beautiful person going at the time. So, yeah. Um, but like, uh, Do you think- um, I was going to say Balor, the sort of the oh, yeah. big king of the Morians was, you know, he had one eye that was poisonous. If it looked at you, you know, you would, wither and die and all sorts of horrific stuff. So they definitely had that monstrous thing going on. And he was described as a giant. Um, when he falls in battle, he, he squishes like 30 people when he lands on them. Oh, wow. So yeah, he was, he was clearly a little big. Hmm. Yeah. I, fi- I find all those stories super fascinating. Uh, there, I really like Lou, the God Lou mm-hmm. and uh, Nuada. And uh, there's some other fun ones, too. Like, I, I heard of this one guy who kind of went to go find out who John the Baptist is, I think. And he kind of took a cruise over to Israel and ended up cutting off his head and then bringing it back. Do you know that story? Um, I think that's the story of um, Tlaxka's father. And I'm trying to remember what his name is. Malgruith, I think it is. Um, I know that he was one of the, he traveled, uh, cause he wanted to learn wisdom and he met like Simon Magus mm-hmm. and, and all this. Yeah. He heard, other he heard there was a I- guy adventures. in Israel or whatever that could float 
yeah. he could levitate, and he wanted to go see how this person levitated. Yep. And so he went out there. Yeah, Margaret. I have a question for you, Morgan. Uh, sure. What what is an old uh, like Irish and or Celtic herbal medicine, or like a favorite kind of herb that pops up a lot and over the place? Oh, that's a good question. Um, let me think if I can try to remember one offhand. Because, of course, as soon as you ask me, the first thing that comes into my mind is not herbal or useful at all. Um, <laughs> well, there's a story of the Dagda. His son, um, Kermit, is killed by Lou because um, he was getting it on with Lou's wife, and Lou didn't appreciate that. Um, yeah, you know, it's it's an interesting story. And the Dagda is so upset at his son's death that he um, uses frankincense and myrrh to preserve the body and herbs, but they don't say what herbs. Uh. Um, and then he takes the body and, and goes searching until he finds a staff that will kill if you touch one end and will heal if you touch the other and brings his son back to life. Um, so, of course, frankincense and myrrh is the first thing that pops into my mind when you ask me that mm-hmm. question. That's completely useless mm-hmm. as an answer. Um, <laughs> I think a lot of times they just tend to reference herbs, but not necessarily a specific one. So um, I heard there was a plant okay. that they used in Ireland a long time ago that they actually ate to um, kind of as birth control. Oh, I'm sure there definitely was. Yeah. Um, yeah. I wouldn't know offhand what the name of it is. Um, okay. the, the herbal stuff is a little less of my, my knowledge base. Um, what about the mushroom herbal stuff? Because it seems to be like mushrooms seem to grow in fairy circles Yep. or that's what we hear about. So what, what can you tell us about that? Sure. Um, Fairy rings, fairy circles are, uh, it's either a circle of mushrooms or darker grass or dead grass. Um, and it's kind of connected as a place that the fairies, uh, have appeared and danced or, you know, sort of a a place that they've been. Um, it is interesting because you have a lot of stories about fairies in Ireland that are sort of connected to around, you know, October, the end of October, that sort of time of year, um, Halloween, as we would call it in the U S Mm-hmm. And that's also a time in Ireland when there are a lot of mushrooms. Uh, mushroom mm-hmm, gathering is mm-hmm. like a thing people do, uh, and they're they're sort of everywhere. Um, so there there might be a connection there. With October, like the, that's a that's also Scorpio time period, right? Yep. Uh, yep. Uh, you Libra see a lot of reliefs. You see a lot of reliefs with like uh, scorpion symbology next to the person. Um, and a snake usually too. It's usually a snake and a scorpion. So there's something very interesting to that. Yeah, yeah. You don't see a lot of snakes in in Irish myth well, per se, just because they don't have snakes yeah. in Ireland. Um, but you do see uh, <laughs> you do see them in um in other areas like Scotland and Gaul. You had the whole druid snake egg thing in Gaul. Um, oh, okay, yeah. Which I don't think anyone ever figured out exactly what that actually was. What? But um, the the druid egg, the snake egg, but um, oh. suppose it was created by a bunch of snakes getting together and spitting and then it formed this egg. Um, which was I always cr- think of it as the cosmic egg and the 
the seed of life was from these old ancient people that were known as the serpents because they were actually pagans and it has pagan connotation to the serpent. Yeah, there's definitely some some deep levels of of meaning to it. Um, you know, in in Scotland, they have a lot of connections with snakes with um uh Brigid, who's one of the goddesses, um also St. Brigid, but uh her holiday February 1st, um uh, there's some really interesting stuff connected to that about the first appearance of the snakes and you sort of don't exactly pray to them exactly sort of hmm. but when you first see the snake you, you kind of say like i see the queen and the queen sees me is how it starts um and then it's it's basically a request not to get bitten by the snakes hmm. for it's sort of be on friendly terms with them um but it reads very much like a prayer sort of a thing and that sort of acknowledgement of the the power of the snake and the importance of it. So there's, there's definitely, it is out there um, in, in different places in Western Europe. So for sure. Yeah, that's that's so good. (laughs) Um, I love that. Do you know of any of like uh, cool stories of these different gods or is there any stories that you know of them? Like I know Finn McCool is a really fun one, but I don't I don't really know any stories of him. Like some of the stuff about Irish mythology is kind of hard to find or get a hold of because there's I, I guess there's just not a huge desire from people to find this stuff or I wanted or not, to ask but, about if there was a reason there's that that there is like that. Is is there a reason it's suppressed at all? And what was it part of a, a, a war or, or a vanish or something? Yeah, because we don't really learn about it in school. You don't really learn about Irish mythology. You learn about some of the other ones, but not that one. And I actually very know very little except for what I know about Norse mythology and stuff and then kind of a little bit of a connection into Ireland. But that's why I wanted to have you on is because I wanted to learn more about these Irish myths because it's so fascinating to me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and they are like fascinating, fascinating stories. Um, I think the the real answer for why we don't learn it in school and why um, it's not sort of as widely out there, I think just comes down to the fact that, you know, up until about 100 years ago, um, Ireland was a colony of England. And mm-hmm. it was definitely very looked down on. Um, there's a lot of material, particularly from the the period when it was a colony uh that kind of equates the irish to like um you know superstitious peasants and not educated and you know so it was this sort of idea that people had that obviously any of the material coming from ireland would would be you know not worth the same as like greek or roman or you know sort of that material that even today we're taught in schools as like the the measuring bar if you will for things. Um, and I think even though we're kind of past that period, you know, the, the Republic of Ireland is an independent country now. Um, there still is a little of that holdover of like, it's, it's more um, seen as lesser than the rest. And that adds to kind of the second part of the problem, which is that not all of it has been translated. So, mm-hmm. We do have, you know, a, a good amount of material in English, 
but there are certain things that are not available. So obviously the majority of people um, don't have modern Irish, never mind older Irish. So you can't, you know, you can't read the story. You can't understand it if you don't, if you don't have the language. And because um, the languages are, are being less and less spoken um, with each generation, I think there's sort of a real risk that some of this is going to be lost or that we're not, we're never going to get everything translated that we actually have in writing. Um, but, you know, there are some good ones. There's a book called um, Ancient Irish Tales by Cross and Slover. It came out in like 1920. So it is older, but it's, it's actually a oh, really wow. good collection of a lot of the myths and the stories and, um, talks about some of the stuff we've been talking about tonight already with, you know, the arrival of certain groups to Ireland and then some of these battles. And um, mm-hmm. there's a really good story called the the fate of the children of Turin, um, which is sort of about Lou, but also kind of about some of all the rest of this. It's a very complicated story. I don't want to launch into retelling it or we'll be here for like half an hour just talking about that. But, um, that you know, okay, there's, but go ahead. <laughs> um, yeah, well, it basically, it's it starts with um, the Fomorians, the battle with the Fomorians and the Tudanan. And uh, with every version of this, Lou is the um, son of a um, Fomorian mother and a Tudanan father. And the um, Tudanan kind of see him as this very important, powerful figure. So they've been trying to keep him away from any of the fighting to kind of keep him out of it. So nothing will happen to him. But he comes in and kind of sees how the Tudan and his people are being oppressed and, and taxed and um, have all these issues because of the Fomorians and sort of is like, well, we need to do something about this. We need to fight um, and overthrow this. And in the story of the children of Turin, it turns out that his father, um, Kian, has this sort of longstanding grudge with these um, three men who are the children of Turin. And when Lou sends him out to go find help um, to help with this battle. And uh, he runs across these three sons of Turin and they basically murder him um, and then keep on merrily about their way. And the battle happens and the two did not win. But then afterwards, Lou's kind of looking around like, well, where's my father? (laughs) You know, why isn't he here? And he eventually finds where the murder happened. And of course, because he's a god and he's powerful and he's a very important figure, um, the earth itself kind of tells him what happened and who did it. Mm. Um, the stones talk to him, sort of a deal. Oh. And of course, he's furious. Mm, but the stones he, talk to him. Yep. Um, of course, he's furious, but he also isn't in a position to just go out and, you know, retaliate, re- retaliate by murdering these three other people um, because he's uh, this important warrior and he just was instrumental in winning this battle. And it just, it just wouldn't be good. It would start a lot more fighting. So instead um, he kind of finds a way around it and he sets, it's, it's called, uh, and I just called him Eric, uh, but it's like a blood price. It's like a um, they have to repay for the murder. And he mm-hmm. gives them this huge list of uh, 
items that are basically all these important, magical, impossible to get kind of items and sends them out. And this is how the Tudani get all these different treasures from different places because they kind of go around the world and, you know, they get like these apples, golden apples of uh, immortality and uh, the sheepskin mm. that heals whoever it's put over. And I mean, this uh, spear that the head is constantly burning, so it has to be kept in the cauldron. I mean, neat stuff like that. Uh, it's a whole list of things. Uh, but of course, you know, at the very end, by the end of it, they've all been really badly wounded. And when they come back, they ask him if they can use that healing sheepskin. Um, because otherwise they're going to die. And, you know, of course, Lou is like, well, no, <laughs> you can't. Um, I mean, he doesn't say it quite that bluntly, but that basically is what it comes down to. Because the whole point was that he, he wanted them to be punished for murdering his father. And, you know, he didn't really want the treasures as much as he wanted them to, you know... Um, pay for what they did really the final thing they had to do was go to the land that his father had been fostered in and fostering was like a huge big deal in ireland and they had to give three Mm. shouts on this hill that was guarded by his murdered father's foster brothers who had sworn an oath never to let anyone shout on the hill don't ask me why because they don't say in the story um and that's kind of the thing that does them in and they're they're so badly injured in that fight that they just make it home and they're like, well, can we use the healing thing? And he's like, no, <laughs> you can't. <laughs> that sheepskin cloak uh, sounds a lot like the coat of many colors from the Bible. That's interesting. You said another one too, and I, I couldn't remember it again. Uh, what was I'm one of the other things? Uh, there's <laughs> apples. The spear. They go, apples oh, the apples of immortality. That reminds me of like the story of Iduna and Iduna's apples <laughs> and Iduna's garden and the Garden of Eden. Uh, same, same type of story almost, you know? Yep. I mean, it's, it's certainly um, possible, although, again, this is one of those things that's hard to ever know for sure but it's certainly possible that some of these things or many of these things were influenced by other ideas and other mythology um you know you mentioned the spear a second ago when we were trying to uh, get the apples but um the idea of the spear that has to be kept in the boiling water i mean there's certainly other spears um in in christian mythology for one example that that could have been alluding to um you know there's there's layers of meaning that you can see in some of these things. Um, And it's important to keep in mind, you know, we tend to picture like ancient Ireland as being this sort of isolated, you know, all by itself sort of a thing. But actually there was a lot of trade and there was a lot of connection with other places. So, you know, they certainly were aware of uh, stories that were told in other places and, you know, then of course, once you have Christianity come in in the fourth century, fifth century, um, you're going to have all of that influence coming in, um, and everything just kind of blends together. You have Norse influence because the Norse, of course, invaded and settled certain areas. Um, so it's it's an interesting mix of stuff. Norse, Norse, of course. I'm sorry, I had to just repeat that. And the Norse, of course, <laughs> of course. 
Yep. <laughs> yeah, there there was actually a sacred grove to Thor just outside of Dublin. Oh wow! Oh really? Mm-hmm. I I have a question. Um, so seemingly from my puny American standpoint that I was, uh, you know, given. Uh, <laughs> uh, just kidding, but you know, the, just very vague, vague world um, histories and stuff like that. I've always had. Um, like I listen to my intuition. My intuition is is the the guide to many of the of the of the paths that we find ourselves down. And and my intuition tells me that like Ireland, um, there's something to the reason why, you know, they're so close to the United Kingdom that it just like the fact that they were taken doesn't it surprise me at all because United Kingdom and you know the British, you know, the, it, England or is a England. bunch of dick, huh? England, yeah, it's all the United Kingdom. Yeah. Oh yeah, England, sorry, but it's like, <laughs> but England, you know, England like England did have a bad habit of invading, and you know that whole empire thing they had going on for a long time. Yeah, yeah. yes, um, that's how we got here like, in the United States. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh goodness. Um, but the the Irish did such a good job at maintaining their land for so long, and being Ireland, or like you know, see, but is it because they just had this? just different way of their spiritual like their spiritual ceremonies or they just were such deeply internal spiritual people that held their do you, do you guys kind of get what i'm saying like they, yeah, it's it, yeah. it's impressive I, to me when i when i think about it i think so i think the fact that so much of the mythology and so much of the folklore is is really deeply embedded in specific locations and places um, they have an entire book. Actually, I should say a book. It's there's two versions of them, and they're like four books each. But um, called the Dintentious, which is um, literally just means story of place names, and each of them it would be like a specific location, but then it would be all the myths and the folklore connected to that location. Um, you know, so like you have the River Shannon. Um, well, how did the River Shannon get its name? It's a goddess named Shannon. Um, who, uh, if I'm remembering this correctly off the top of my head, um, unleashes the water that would become the river, uh, but is dismembered in the process. And Shut in. Wow. yeah, so then I she is the river <laughs> and the river is her. And, you know, she's this goddess. And, you know, when you have beliefs that are like that, that are so closely tied to, you know, this hill or that river or that mountain or that lake, it's hard to to get people to stop having that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The connection to the land that yep. that that spiritual goodness. Yep, yep. And then it just gets passed on because every generation, you know, those are the stories that you're told about. Like, oh, well, that's the that's the hill where the fairies live. We don't mess with that because then bad things will happen. And you know, this is a river that used to be a goddess and kind of still is a goddess and. You know, that's the mountain that the two had an landed on when they came in their ships out of the sky. I mean, it's all just so very immediate. Intention. And present. Yeah. yeah. What's, does that mountaintop have a name or that mountain have a name where they land? The one they um, landed on? Yep. In, in English, what? it's called Iron Mountain. And uh, I believe mm. it's Connemara. Don't the fairies hate iron? They do, which is very interesting. Um, that it happens to be that particular place that they were said to have, to have landed on. 
Yeah. Wow. That's weird. That is really interesting. <laughs> Isn't it? Yeah. Kind of, are the fairies kind of like dwarves and stuff in a way? Because you hear in like, you know, like the Renaissance type of mythology, the King Arthur stuff of, and even kind of in Norse mythology, you hear of them making weapons from <laughs> iron and stuff like that. So. Is there yeah, any connotation to that? Like maybe they had to do it for so long or like the imps or like Santa Claus's little elves or whatever. Like they got so tired of making the iron now. Now they just hate it. <laughs> <laughs> Having worked retail for a while, I can actually completely empathize with that. And <laughs> I, I can see that as a believable theory. Um <laughs> Yeah, there's there's definitely, you know, depending on where we're looking at, there's definitely beings that would be very similar to what we would see in, in Norse as like the dwarves. Um, the the Aeshi, the fairies in Ireland, are a little more like the Alfar, um, specifically the Loiselfar, the light elves um, in Norse myth. So, um, the Alf, the A A A L F A L F. Yep. Oh, interesting. Elves, um, but so. It also English, means elf. elf. Yeah, elf in English is such a broad term. Like it's it. It's hard to it say that gets without into the, Yeah. The nine realms, though, of uh, of like Norse mythology, and how they're named because there's like a Svartalheim, which yep. means like black elf home, and then like you know stuff like that. So. And they have a belief of high elves and dark elves also. And it kind of actually kind of sounds a lot like the Fomorians and the uh, Daedanon. Yep. yep. I've, um, I've heard other people say something very similar that maybe they're, they're connected or um, if not directly connected, at least very similar kind of concept. Um Hmm. You know, it's it's interesting if we look at Scotland, for example, because Scotland um, has also a very complicated history, but has a lot of Irish influence. And then, of course, Norse influence, because the Norse, again, took over parts of it for a while. Um, but mm -hmm. they use the term elf there instead of fairy. And they say um, elf home, elf hame would be the Scottish, but mm -hmm. the Scots. Um, which clearly is kind mm. of drawing on that that Norse idea of Alfheim, um, which literally they both literally That's just right. mean Elfholm. Uh, so, yeah. you know, there's also a whole theory that that certain academics have kind of embraced that in Iceland, part of the reason that the Icelandic view of these beings, the Holda folk, the Elfar, is so similar to the Irish, is because of the number of Irish, particularly women, Irish women that uh, were brought over to Iceland when it was being founded um, mm. and that because they kind of brought all their beliefs and ideas with them, then it sort of blended with the Norse and it kind of created this uh, very particular approach to things, which is um, got a lot more Irish in it than you would find in like Germany, for example. Yeah. Might get a little conspiratorial, and you might not know anything about this. I might, I might have, not. We'll have see. you ever heard of Tartaria? I actually don't think I have. There's this in. belief that what um, America had large structures here before, and that they covered them up, 
But there's also a story of orphan trains and that they brought in all these children from these orphan trains and resettled these uh, buildings that had already been built and they kind of built facades around them to make them seem like something new, even though they're old. And then they, because they're bringing kids in, they're able to manipulate them into believing whatever they want, whatever they were told and kind of restart society again as like a, a restart because there is old buildings here in America and uh, there's this whole, you know, Tartarian aspect of uh, directed energy weapons and melting mountains and all kinds of other stuff. There's, but, there's evidence of a mud flood from, that's that worldwide, but that's, a lot, a lot in North America. Yeah. So Interesting. what I, my question is in this is, I know that in like around the 16, late 1600s, it's kind of when slavery started and they were taking a lot of people from Ireland, the Jacobites uh, and everything. And uh, the Stuart lie was kind of fading out and England was really pushing to take over. Do you think maybe some of those orphan trains were from maybe people that were killed in, in those battles and they were already coming to America, so they brought a lot of the children with them to here. Is there any stories about stuff like that happening? Um, I mean, it's not something I'm familiar with. Uh, certainly, if we're talking about like the the time around the Jacobite Rebellion, um, and then the the Highland Clearances, um, and then obviously a little later with the Irish women, but um, any kind of big historical uh, thing like that, where you have a lot of upheaval. And um, a lot of population shifting, you know, you're, you're definitely going to get a lot of children being moved around, um, not only, you know, with families, but also separated from families. So, you know, just the idea of, uh, of orphans and children being uh, brought over to the U.S. Um, or the colony, British colonies at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's certainly plausible. I'm sure that, uh, that there was a lot of that going on. Um, it's not something I know very much in particular about, so. No, that's fine. I, I found it interesting, uh, the aspect I wanted to bring it up, uh, mostly because I, I, I was reading this other book and there was a, there's a fairy called a Jacobine. Do you know anything about that? It's not something I've heard of. Um, my main focus does tend to be Irish though. So with things that are kind of outside of, uh, um, you know, Irish material. I'm a little less familiar sometimes. Um, it is, it's a, it is a fairy though. Yep. There are so many out there. Um, you know, even outside of like Irish and, and Scottish and Welsh, um, English, um, there's so many different kinds. Sometimes, like I said earlier at the very beginning, sometimes I feel like the more you learn, the more you don't know. So, Mm. there's a lot out there uh also uh in the book i was reading it said that the the two a day denanan were broken into two groups the deoing said the deoing she dana she and the the what dana she how you say dana she she okay okay and then the finian heroes Okay, um, that would be Finn McCool, uh, Oshin, um, 
I should know so the names is, is of all the rest of them. Connection oh, Shane to was Finn's Finland. Son. Is there any connection to Finland and uh, Denmark? Um, I mean, not directly that I know of. Like I said, though, there was a lot of influence with the Vikings coming in um, to Ireland and Scotland and uh, kind of that whole area. Uh, the Orkneys would be another example. So um, mm-hmm. culturally, I'm sure there is. Um, specifically, uh, when it comes to that, um, I'm not as certain. Uh, Dinashi just means people of the fairy hills, people of the fairy mounds. Um, Finians would be specifically like the Fianna, um, Finn Mekul and his, his men, the Fianna. Um, there's a, a whole selection of, uh, mi- stories and mythology, a whole, they call it mythological cycles is how the, the Irish material is kind of organized. Um, there's a whole set of stories that are the Fenian cycle. Um, and that's the story of, of Finn Mekul kind of from birth and then forward. And then his son, Oshin. Um, is one of the the most well-known of the Fianna heroes. Um, He is the one, if you're familiar with the story, who he um, is met by a woman of the other world, Neve of the golden hair. And she's kind of like, hey, Oshin, I see you're really handsome and a wonderful hero. Perhaps you would like to come to the other world with me. And, you know, to no one's surprise, he's like, yeah, that sounds like a great plan. And so he goes to Tinanak with her, and um, uh, different versions of the story, but uh, they're together, probably married, possibly have a couple of children. But eventually he's sort of like, you know, I would really like to go back to Ireland um, and see my father, Finn, and, you know, see my other friends uh, of the Fianna. And she initially doesn't want him to go. And then it's kind of like, this is a bad idea, but finally sort of gives in and is like, well, I will give you a horse, you know, to cross over the ocean. But when you get to Ireland, you can't, whatever you do, you cannot get off the horse. Don't touch the ground. And he's like, all right, I'll do this. And so he goes and he gets there and he's looking around. And to him, all the people he sees seem very small and very weak. And he's kind of just sort of amazed at how much things seem to have changed. And he sees several men struggling to move this this boulder, which to him is something he could do by himself. So he brings the horse over to kind of try to help them move this boulder. And of course, the girth snaps on the saddle. He falls. And as soon as he hits the ground, he becomes a very old, decrepit man. Um, because that's what happens when you've been in the world of fairy for a couple hundred years. Not that he knew it had been a couple hundred years. but And then you, you touch mortal earth again. Um, and then, of course, because this is, you know, uh, an Irish epic story, uh, he meets St. Patrick and they have this whole conversation and Oshin kind of relates all these stories of the Fianna and all their adventures and who Finn was and kind of tells them how much more awesome and epic Ireland was before. <laughs> um, mm. It's actually a really cool story. Um, and then, of Sounds course, amazing. eventually it is. It's It's one of the better ones, I think, for just sort of all the all the stuff that goes on in it um and then of course eventually he is baptized and you know becomes christian and dies is kind of how it ends Mm -hmm. um but it's it's a really interesting story that would be an example of like one of the the fianna tales the finian tales awesome wow that's cool um it's one of my favorites that's why i got a little uh heated on that one yeah we love that stuff 
Um, so the, so I want to ask specifically, okay, do you, Morgan, believe in fairy and yes. fairies and, and for, for spirits, if you will? I do. Um, I, I believe in these beings. I've had experiences, uh, myself. I've been with other people who've had experiences. Um, there's one story that I, I do tell sometimes where, um, I was in Ireland in 2016 uh, with a group of friends, one of whom is a musician, and fairies are known to be very fond of musicians. And he had gone out walking uh, kind of at dusk, which is another thing, like very fairy kind of time, and came back and was telling us about how he had heard voices in the woods calling to him, calling him to join them. And so we spent the whole oh, rest shit. of the trip. Yeah, we spent the whole rest of the trip joking that we were going to get him like iron underwear because we did not <laughs> want him getting like, kidnapped into fairy. Um, you know, and I've I've had my own experiences where you know I've I've seen things. I saw a fairy hound um, once. Uh, what exactly is a fairy hound? Um, there's a couple different kinds. A fairy hound is is. A type of hound, uh, it's usually like a large dog that is from the other world. So it's not a human world animal. Um, they're kind of smarter, hmm. I think. Not that human world dogs aren't smart, but um, <laughs> they're smarter. They're kind of canny, that sort of a smart. Um, and usually when they show up, they're either um, bad omens or they're sort of... Um, they come before the the fairies would come. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. So it's kind of like a dire wolf or like yeah, that's kind of kind yeah, of yeah. yeah, yeah, the, yeah. They're called kushi um, in in Irish or Scottish. Um, the Scottish ones are supposed to be mm. like the size of a, a calf, baby cow, and like dark oh, green. Yeah, they're they're not small and dark green and dark green. Um, you wouldn't notice the dark green though, I think, unless you. Had in just it's the at right that kind dusk of lighting. Period, yeah. probably. That's weird. Yeah, in the forest at, at that dusk. Yeah, interesting. Um, okay, the, okay. The so Welsh that ones are white. Um, Irish ones okay. can be white, can be black. So, little variety. Wow, mm-hmm. that's so that's so cool. Um, there's I'm I'm in this place of Malala, Oregon, which is interesting because I came here out of pure. Uh, kind of random synchronistic situation and now I'm back and at the first time I was on the property this is the only places I've ever been where people have openly admitted that there's fairies on their property um, is in this town and I was like oh that's great that's amazing I love that you have fairies on your property thank you for sharing that information as I go trance about and and start doing my thing um, you know we were at this like kind of like uh, decentralized uh, living festival. So it was, um, you know, a bunch of like-minded people getting together and doing meditation and, you know, music and conferences and such. And, um, that night it was damn near full moon. And, um, I mean, I I witnessed, I, I witnessed like orbs and like there was two of them and they flew right above me. My friend were lying on a blanket in the evening, like at night, like maybe even like one in the morning, um, which, and she was like, those were fairies. And I was like, those were fairies. That was, how, those were, was how big were they? They were, I mean, they were like, it was like a, 10 inches. 
about, yeah, about 10 inches or so. And they flew, um, she saw them once while I was uh, facing the other direction. And then I felt something behind me kind of, and then that was really interesting. And then here on this property, which is different than that other one, but it is in the same town. I've come back um, due to some uh, monetary advancements my way, this way in work of farm work, agricultural, if you will. And I will. So um, a friend that lives here was telling me about, um, and he has Irish um, uh, background in, in his life and uh, genetics and such. And he, his father passed away a, a bit ago and he was out there on the anniversary of that and the, the edge of the field. And through the tree line, there was an orb that came out of the tree line and headed his way and just kind of floated up over him and then passed, passed on. And, and he just, he was like, you know, is that my father or a fairy or some sort of energetic source? And, you know, that's why it brings me in. I, th I think it's all very, very interesting. And I think that there's a suppression to that type of energy and that, that type of existence. And that's, you know, like that's what's being upon us, but we need to rip open the veil and, you know, don't get stuck in the fae, but we need to know that it's there. Cool. Cool. Yeah, well, I'm definitely a, a big believer that it is there. Um, and I think a lot more people have stories than we we really tend to hear mm -hmm. because a lot of times when we're talking about fairies, people feel like even more so than like other types of phenomena, people feel like, well, it's going to be silly if I say that I saw fairies, you know, like you can say I saw a ghost, right? A ghost experience and people take it a little more seriously. But as soon as you say fairies, people are like, okay, right. Yeah. Fairies, yep. you know, <laughs> is there a connection between people that have, you know, like Irish blood and them seeing fairies and maybe other people not seeing fairies because mm. they don't have the blood? I mean, potentially with specific sorts of things, like um, the Banshee is something that's supposed to follow specific families, and oh. um, it'll appear before someone in the family dies as a warning, just to let you know. It doesn't cause the death, but to kind of let, let the family know that's going to happen. And that's something what's that... What's the Banshee? Um, it literally means fairy woman, but it's this female fairy that... Uh, is attached to a particular family line and appears sort of crying and wailing and mourning before a death happens. And it's usually people, uh, usually people in the family who will hear her or see her right before then. Um, and there, there is an idea, you know, it's not, not that it's literally every person uh, who has Irish ancestry or what have you, but there is an idea in Ireland um, and Scotland of certain people being born with what's called the second sight or spirit sight, which is this idea mm -hmm. that you, you can perceive these things that other people can't necessarily perceive. Uh, I mean, there's also folklore, like if you're born with a call over your head, um, you know, that that's another sign that you'd be able to see spirits that sort of thing but you know there's What's definitely a call? um a call is like when a baby is born and part of that um amniotic sac is okay. over their head um oh. kind of like if you've ever seen animals being born like puppies or yeah, cats yeah. Or, or they are usually born completely in it and then the mother has to kind of uh -huh. get them out humans Pop don't generally work that way Okay. But 
But every now and then you'll you'll have a baby that's born like partially covered in that halfway in the fae. Yeah, um, and it's seen as being this very otherworldly. Uh, that's a good way to put it: halfway in the fae kind of thing, um, and a sign that they would mm. have this extra perception. Um, so you know, even outside of specific you know family lines or ancestry, there's this idea that certain people have this ability. Um, there was a book that was written in 1691 by Reverend Robert Kirk. It's called The Secret Commonwealth of Elves, Fawns, and Fairies. And um, he was a, a minister in the lowlands of Scotland. And he basically wrote a treatise on fairies, on Scottish fairies, who they are, what they are, what they can do. Um, it's, it's short, but it's got a lot of information in it. Um, and it's a very important What's the name of the text. book again? Um, the Secret Commonwealth of Elves, Fawns, and Fairies uh, by Reverend Robert Kirk. And um, in it, he does talk quite a bit at length about people with the second sight and how that works and how they see the things they see and sort of what they're capable of seeing. Uh, it was obviously a subject he was very interested in. Um, Robert Kirk himself is an interesting person. He was a seventh son, which is supposed to be, according oh. to folklore, someone who uh, can perceive extra things and kind of has extra abilities. Magic. Yeah. Yep. Um, and, seventh son of the seventh son. Yeah. And after he wrote this, um, this work about the Scottish fairies, um, he actually, and he was in his early 40s at the time, collapsed while he was walking next to a fairy hill. And so the local folklore to this day swears that he, he actually was taken by the fairies is what happened. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Um, supposedly, uh, supposedly after he died or was taken, his cousin had a dream that he was, that Reverend Kirk was going to appear at the christening of his son who had been born after Kirk had died or been taken. Um, and that he had told the cousin, when you see me, appearing at the back of the room during the christening, if you throw an iron knife above me, I'll be freed from the fairies and I'll be able to return. And of course the cousin saw him and then panicked mm. and froze and didn't do it. Um, and then Kirk disappeared. So there's, yeah, there's some really interesting folklore around him, but the book, you can find it in a lot of different places. It's free online because it's so old. Um, I just found it for $3 did, uh, on Abe. Yep. Did a, uh, Iron fences originate in Ireland by any chance? You know, I honestly <laughs> don't know, but I do know that the idea of of putting them around um, your perimeter, yeah, around perimeters, uh, is because they are thought to keep out um, not just fairies but ghosts and uh, yeah. negative magic, demons. Iron's very that's useful. Very, that's so interesting. That well, tell us about um, Irish magic and uh, maybe occultic Irish magic practices or ceremonies. Just, uh, just a couple of the important ones. I know, um, just, just a couple of your favorite ones. I'm trying. Most of my favorite ones are, are going to sound like really terrible and inappropriate when I share them, but I, it's because I have, a, it. a, <laughs> I have a very macabre sense of humor, to be clear. <laughs> but like, so there is a practice on uh, May 1st, uh, Bialchina. It's um, a holiday got a lot of different associations with it but there was this idea that if you went out um before dawn on may 1st and walked counterclockwise around your neighbor's property and buried an egg that you would kind of take all their luck <laughs> and prosperity for yourself 
Um, oh my god, that's so. <laughs> I, I that's apologize, but like that's, that's you know I, I remember those particular <laughs> ones because they're entertaining. Um, no need to apologize. You could also go what visit Holy in- Well on May Day morning and, and <laughs> skim the well, and that water would supposedly make you beautiful for the whole year. So see, there's a more positive Aww. one. There we go. I love that. What happens if you stop this uh, someone from stopping around your uh, your house and you just smash the egg out of their hand and say, "Ha ha, no." Then you would get to keep your luck. You you would get. Hey, to keep there it. we go. Yeah, see, you gotta. That's why you keep the back the back windows. You know, you gotta have the you gotta have them open a little bit. Yep. Yep. There's Don't there's a lot of um, there's a lot of interesting Irish magical practices that kind of have to do with the idea of either keeping your own luck or, um, you know, getting your neighbor's luck. Particularly for neighbors like not the greatest person. Well, like we didn't in the magic the too, don't you? Uh, draw a circle around you to contain mm-hmm. everything within the circle. So that kind of, yeah. is is that more, is that another, uh, does that allude to the fairy ring idea also? Or Yep. I think there's definitely a lot of um, significance, the idea with circles and rings um, that oh. they can both be kind of opening into places. Yeah. And also like protection. Yes. Um, there's a, a Scottish ballad, the Ballad of Tamlin, where the basically the fairy queen has stolen this uh, man who is now one of her knights, and he does not like this arrangement and has kind of convinced his girlfriend to try to rescue him from the fairies, which is always going to be an adventure. Um, but at one point it talks about how she gets a handful of holy water and makes a circle of holy water around herself, and then the fairies can't see her. So she's kind of hidden in the circle of holy water until they pass by, and then she jumps out and grabs her boyfriend. But um, sort of just emphasizing that significance of the circle and the, the power of that's it. That's really cool. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Um, when I was listening to another podcast you were on, you, you had mentioned earlier that you're EMT. Don't you have like a an EMT story that's a little, little out there. Oh, I'm sure I have oh, more than one EMT this? story that's a little out <laughs> there. Um, I actually ended up on a, a paranormal TV show with one of my EMT stories. Um, it's the only time I ever saw a ghost. Yeah, I think that's the one. Yeah, um, yeah, I can I can tell that story. Not fairy related, but um, I I was an EMT and we responded to a call, and it was a head-on collision. Uh, which, you know, these things tend to go one of two ways, generally. Um, either you get there and it's it's nothing, like everyone's fine, there's just a little damage to the car, it's not a big deal, or it's going to be really bad. And this one, as we were coming up to it, traffic was just stopped in both directions. As far as you could see, it took us a while to actually get the ambulance around to where we needed to go. And I knew it was going to be bad. Like, that's never going to go anywhere good. And, um, you know, sure enough, we got there and one of the vehicles, the gentleman um, who was in his early 20s, had fallen asleep at the wheel coming home from his second job and had hit the other car head on. Um, He had not been wearing a seatbelt, so he had gone partway through the windshield, which is all I'm going to say about that. Um, But it was it was a bad scene. And we got him into the ambulance. And we're trying to do what we could. Paramedic got there. 
paramedics said, this is no good. You know, we're just going to call this. And it turns out (laughs) that you really can't do that. Like you either have to keep trying until you get to the hospital and the hospital makes that decision, or you have to make Mm -hmm. that decision when the person is still in the vehicle, not in the ambulance. But we didn't know that. Um, And the paramedic, I guess, didn't care. I don't know. So we, (laughs) we went to the hospital because we can't unload the person once they're in the back of the ambulance and we get to the hospital and the hospital wouldn't take him because oh my goodness wow hospital doesn't take people who have already been declared deceased so we were sitting Hmm. in the ambulance bay um with this this gentleman um and we 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 can't bring him back and you know (laughs) So we just, we were kind of sitting there and I kept thinking that I recognized him, um, which it turned out I did. He was actually a friend of a friend. I couldn't place it at the time. And, you know, you're sitting there and time's going by and, and you're um, total silence because no one wants to have small talk in this situation. There was another woman in the back of the ambulance with me and then we had the ambulance driver. And at one point I looked up and through the rear window of the ambulance, I saw the gentleman who was in the back of the ambulance kind of standing against the bricks. Wow. Um, and he looked at me and I looked at him. And then I looked down, you know, because you have that moment, even when you're kind of used to strange things happening sometimes where it just, your your brain doesn't quite catch up. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I looked yeah. down and then looked back up. Um, and he was still there. And I think it was at that point, I turned to the other woman that was with me and asked her, I'm like, do you see that? And she turned and looked and he was gone. And that was the only time as an EMT that I ever saw a ghost because we, you know, we dealt with death, obviously sometimes it happens. And, you know, sometimes you get called to a scene where the person is already deceased. Hmm. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff being an EMT that you see, but it's the only time I ever had an experience where I, I saw um, anything like that. Uh, and did I don't know any if of the other people, did any of the other people that were with you see it also, or was it just you? I don't know. Um, I, t- to this day, I don't know if the woman who was with me did see it and just didn't want to admit that she saw it. Uh, Cause again, you know, much like I was saying with people don't want to admit when they see fairies because fairies, you know, people, particularly EMTs tend to try not to be, um, they tend to be very skeptical and very rational. And, you know, when I asked her if she saw him, she seemed kind of startled when she looked out at first, by the time I looked from her back out, I didn't see him again, but, um, you know, then she just looked at me like, she didn't know what I was talking about. Um, so then it got very weird and awkward, but um, I, I don't know. I don't know if she saw him or not. Um, okay. And then I didn't see him That's after good. that. I don't know if uh, it was because we'd been sitting with him for so long. I did, don't know if it's because I did know him um, casually. Okay. Uh, like I said, it was, it turned out to be a friend of a friend. Um I don't know if it was, you know, that he was also kind of standing there wondering why we're just hanging out. 
you know, um, um, I, I don't know. Roman's got to go in five minutes. I know I talked to you previously about how long you wanted to do this podcast for. Uh, did you want to do an hour and a half or two hours or what are you um, good for? Yeah, I'm just about at an hour and a half. Uh, I actually have yeah, small children. A... I have to make sure okay. they... Small if I, children. Yeah, if I don't make sure they get to bed, then they're just going to be feral and not, and they have school okay. in the morning. So well, We can, we can uh, end it here and then... Uh, uh, That's well, a good story to end on. We'll end on a, yeah, we'll have... a nice up note for everyone. <laughs> It's yeah. a ghost story. Everybody that loves ghost stories. Great. That, uh, that was, that was no, really... that's it's great. Uh, I do not often uh, tell that story, so Oh, okay. You, know, well, you, you guys are special. Okay. Yeah, we are special. Actually. To this True. day, to this day when I tell it, like the hair comes up on my arms, like it's still Oh, yeah. It was that's such you know. a weirdly intense experience. Um mm, I don't know. It's significant. <laughs> it's it seems very significant. You know, it, it was, um, it was, and like what do you, I said, what do you think that? What do you think ghosts are? Do you have an a like a like a belief of what that is like in the reality world? Like, what are we? What is? What are you witnessing? You know? Yeah, I mean, I I don't know if it's that there's something that's actually perceptibly there. Like if there was a camera, if we could have like caught him on camera kind of a thing, if it's something that we just sense or perceive, um, you know, like some kind of wavelength that we tune into mm, sometimes, you um, you know, in that case, I, I definitely did feel like it was that person, um, mm-hmm. you know, and he, he seemed kind of as confused as I was, you know, from what I Did remember. Did he seem like completely there or like a hologram? When I looked up, he seemed completely there, but in fairness, it was at this point, um, twilight, it was getting a little dark okay. and it was through the glass of the, the back window of the ambulance. So yeah. you get a little bit of a distortion with that. Um, you know, he didn't, I didn't look like there wasn't glass there and I was like seeing through it. Um, he, it yeah. looked like someone standing on the other side, but I couldn't swear that had there been no glass, he wouldn't have looked a little, you know, transparent or, or holographic or along those lines. Um, uh, Roman, did you have any, uh, final questions? Um, I do. I mean, uh, it's, well, let's see. Let's see. Uh, I just don't want to be like throw another big one on you, but uh, go ahead. So we've, we've got two minutes. We'll see what we can do. <laughs> and uh, I'm curious if Irish mythology, um, if they believed that the fairies or energy from the fae realm can be um, put into organic or physical manifestations, like trees or rocks. Um, and you kind of talked about it earlier with like a God, you know, being portrayed as the river, but you know, I, I, my mom specifically sees faces and rocks all the times. And has been known to uh, have tell stories about a troll that she saw levitating rocks. Um, oh, cool. and then I see, I see bodies and trees all the time. So I'm curious what, um, the Irish mythology has to say about that. Um, I mean, I definitely think we see stories where, they are manifesting in or through or manipulating in that sense, things like that. Um, trees, rocks, the earth, um, the air, 
for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, they, yeah, yeah. They also in folklore are really well known for having a particular power called glamour, which is this sort of magical ability that influences people's sight uh, and all the senses, really. I mean, like, uh, mm-hmm. there's a lot of stories about people seeing fairy food. And it looks like, you know, this delicious feast, but it's actually like acorns and leaves and, you know, all that sort of stuff. But, you know, you see it as food, you you touch it, you taste That's it. That's pretty cool. Yeah. It's not until something happens, it kind of breaks the magic. And then you're like, well, ew, <laughs> what did I just and you're eat? And you're not supposed to eat fairy food, right? No, you're not. Um, it's it's The idea is if you eat it, it'll um, enchant you or trap you in the world of fairy. Um, and also, as we just said, it, it probably is not what it looks like it is. So, um, horse probably poop. don't want, yeah, you know, <laughs> there actually, there is a story where it's the, the corpse of an old woman and yeah. this, this person goes to this feast and initially it looks like, you know, a feast. And then something happens that kind of snaps the human out of the magic. There's always the f- something in the different stories and they're just like, huh it's like their you know old neighbor who was always really mean and and stingy and the fairies oh are kind of laughing about it yeah it seems like so, the fae are very much like little trickster children they can they can be very mischievous or malicious and they they definitely um enjoy uh tricking humans it's a hobby so <laughs> you know, sometimes harmless like they'll steal your car keys or you know, small items, but definitely sometimes, you know, a a little more dangerous than that. So. All right. Well, excellent. Uh, Thank you, Morgan, for joining us today. Uh, We will have to do this again sometime. I really wanted to get into the whole changeling aspect of the fairy realm too. Oh, wow. Yeah. We didn't get to that, huh? Yeah. There's so much, there's so much to get into. I know, but that's the beautiful thing about it is there is so much to get into. There is. That's why it affords us to (laughs) be able to have a show. (laughs) (laughs) There's always more to talk Uh, about. Yeah. Uh, Why don't you tell the people where they can find you and get your books and uh, anything else like that? Sure. Uh, well, I'm on social media, as everyone in the the known, you know, first world universe is. Um, I'm on Facebook. <laughs> I'm on Instagram. <laughs> You're a brave one. I admire that. Um, you got kicked off of everything. That's why. Well, you know, that works too. <laughs> um, I'm on Twitter. Everything's under Morgan Daimler, so I'm, I'm pretty easy to find. And how um, do you spell your last name for people that might not be aware of? D A I. M L E R. It's a good solid German last name. Daimler. Like the car company, Daimler Chrysler, if that helps people remember it. Um I no idea about that. <laughs> yeah. Me neither. Uh-uh. <laughs> I could I could go on a whole tangent about the Daimler. They um invented the first upright steam engine and it was Daimler oh. Benz car company for a while. It's a whole big thing. Um wow. but yeah. Wow. So there's that and um Let's see, I have, I believe it's 39 books that are published at the moment. Whoa. Um, I mean, I do a little bit of everything. So I've got some fiction. I've got a lot of nonfiction. I've got some translation work out there. Um, How many years did that take to do? 11. Um, And they're all about... 2010. They're all over 200 pages or... 
Some of um, them are real small. Some... Not all of them. My, yeah, my publisher does a series called Pagan Portals that would be through Moon Books. Okay. And those are around 100 pages a piece. I've got, oh, okay. I think, 13 or 14 of those. Um, I have oh. some that are bigger. I have a, a new fairy dictionary. Actually, I actually have it right here. Um, I have a new fairy dictionary, and that's a, a chunkier one. Um, the translation books tend to be smaller. And then the fiction, the novels are like 200, 250 pages. So, and that you can get those on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Prolific. I like to keep busy. Prolific. Yeah. yeah you, you and and you're a mama of two. Wow. Of tiny children. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Three of them. It, it seemed like a good idea. And now do it's just have, chaos. Do they have fairy <laughs> names? Um, I guess that would depend on your perspective. Okay. Uh, I mean, my oldest is named Gray, so that's that's a little fairy. And then my okay. middle one is Aries, so I mean that's a zodiac reference, but yeah, you know, fiery. Yeah, oh, it, it's, yeah, it's it fiery fits. instead it of fairy. <laughs> yeah, so a, a little fairy, I guess, going on in there. A little fairy All reference. All right, well, excellent. Thank you. Uh, yeah, thanks for having for me coming on. on our show. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was. We it was really it. fun. And uh, look forward to talking to you again. Definitely. I'll have to hit you up now to book for two months later because you're a busy lady. You know where to find me. Yeah, it's like I said, always writing something and trying to keep my children from like gnawing through furniture. So, yeah. Do you do you're audio doing books YouTube at all? videos? You're doing podcasts. You got. Yep, yep. I have a, um, I have a YouTube channel. I do have uh, one audiobook out right now, Fairy Craft. I have a second one, um, Fairies, coming out in October. So, kind of uh, a little bit of everything. I do university presentations sometimes. I've got a couple of those. So, I kind of like to keep busy and keep diverse. Yes, congratulations. Thank you for your work. Well, thank you thank very you much. For your and we'll. See you next time. Cool. Thank you for having me on. All right. Bye-bye.